Happy Thanksgiving. It's always, I'm always a little bit anxious this Sunday after Thanksgiving. I always think that you guys are going to sleep in, not come to church, because you have too much gravy flowing through your veins. But good to see that some of you guys actually made it out today. Um, I also want to give a really big shout out to uh, Kim Ronslaben, Anthony, LB, and Megan for doing an amazing job the last few weeks uh, teaching in James. So give them a big, big clap. And today we're going to be in James chapter 4, and we'll start there in just a little bit. James chapter 4, verse, we'll start in verse 13 in a few minutes. So every four years, we have this election cycle, and we hear the word a lot. We hear the word equality or inequality, and we need to be equal. And so we hear this word thrown around a lot, and it usually centers around finances, right? It usually centers around money, like who's got money and who doesn't have money, um, this group isn't paying their fair share. This group needs to benefit from those taxes. So we're going to talk about equality. And party platforms are based on this word, equality. Everybody wants equality. Everybody wants financial equality, especially financial fairness. And so elections are won and lost on these promises of fairness um, as we see equality. And I think we feel this tension a bit even in the church. Um, because we've been talking about in the book of James how in the church, the, uh, the church should be a place where rich and poor, different social classes can be under the same roof, under the gospel, and should be worshiping Jesus together. And so the gospel should lead to diversity. The gospel should always lead to diversity. It should always bring people together that would normally not be together. And so you might um, say it like this. I'll put this up on the screen. Uh, Gospel should always lead to diversity. But where there is diversity, that means there are real differences between people. This would be maybe ethnic differences or financial differences. But if there's going to be diverse, that means there's going to be differences, real differences. Differences can lead to comparison. Well, why do they have that? I don't have that. Why do they live that way? I can't live that way. And so differences lead to comparison. Comparison can spiral into judgment. And then judgment can then lead to divisions where the financial classes are entrenched on their side and they see the other people as them over there. And so this is what can happen as a result of diversity um, in the church. And So we all agree, though, where the gospel's at work, there should be diversity. Um, But this can often lead eventually into comparison, judgment, and divisions. So I was thinking this past couple of weeks about how this, um, putting myself back in high school. And I'm just going to tell you my sin this morning because I struggled in high school with this. Now listen, don't feel sorry for me because I went to a great school, had a great upbringing, great Christian parents. Um, I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to let you know where my sinful heart would take me when I was at your stage of life and where it still takes me to this day sometimes. So just bear with me on this. So when I was in high school, um, there was this family in our church that just had a lot, a lot of money. They had a ton of money. And, you know, it's, it sounds kind of dumb I'm even saying this because I, w- I went to a, a private Christian school, but I was not a wealthy person in the private Christian school. 
Mom worked there. My dad had a blue-collar job. So we were, you know, paycheck to paycheck. They sacrificed greatly for us to go to this school. But there were people in my school that had a lot of money. And they also went to that same school. So they, there was this guy who was a, a really, really good basketball player. He was the kind of guy that could afford, like, all the expensive basketball camps. Like, he was a big um, uh, Duke Blue Devils fan. I've got Mr. Eshball up here in the front row, so that's just appropriate right now. Um, but he was a big Duke fan. He would go to Duke and pay tons of money for Duke basketball camps. And, just, and, and so his 16th birthday arrives, and the dude pulls up into the school parking lot in, like, a brand-new black Corvette. And I just look at this guy, and I just go, I hate you even more now, right? This was so difficult. And my parents had told us, they said, look, like, we're not going to buy you a car. You've got to work for your own car. You've got to pay for your own car. And so from the time I was, like, 14, I'm just saving pennies and saving till when I'm, like, 19 where I can finally afford a car for myself. And this is how it was going to go for us. My parents also said, we're not going to, you know, pay for you to go to school. Like, you've got to pay your own way through school, at least most of the way your own way. We'll pay a portion. We can't afford to pay all of it. And that was just our reality. So I'm not complaining again, but I'll just tell you that, that my, my friends, when they left high school, many of them could go off to the, you know, nice, expensive, like, private university, and I'm stuck back home doing local school because that's what we could afford at the time. And I'm so grateful what God did with that, but it, it produced coveting. It produced this sense of entitlement, the sense of why do they get to live this way and I have to live this way. In my heart, it created this kind of entitlement mentality. And so even, I'll even admit to you, I still struggle with this at times. Like when I am on the stage on graduation Sunday over there in the main building, and many of you get to say things like, I'm going off to this four-year school, and or that four-year school. There's a little bit of jealousy that, that creeps up in me where I'm like, yeah, I didn't really get the chance to go do something like that. You know, I didn't go to the same kind of school they went to. And, and I still struggle with this at times. And I would imagine that many of you, you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about um, what your future is going to look like when it comes to, you know, clothes, cars, schools, etc. And you're thinking about this and you're thinking, I'm not sure I can afford what so-and-so can afford. And there's a bit of comparison, and then some judgment, and then some division that creeps in um, in the body of Christ. So I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever asked the question, why does God allow differences among us that make us feel unequal? Why does God allow differences? So why does God allow differences in talent, differences in money, differences in ability to make people, some people feel inferior and some people feel superior? Have you ever wrestled with this question? Why doesn't God make everyone just equal, talent, no differences? And I can't fully answer the question for you this morning, but I want to just explore this for a minute. Because here's what I do know. Because of these differences that we find ourselves, between ourselves sometimes, the person who has much can learn generosity. The person who has a lot 
can learn how to give, can learn how to be generous. The person who has little can learn how to be satisfied with little and can learn satisfaction in Jesus Christ. So you understand that, that both sides of the equation are going to have different struggles. But they're both going to have struggles, right? And so is it possible that God, in His wisdom, He allows these differences not to cause division, but for something else? Because if you, if, if you think about this, um, if we all were the exact same, we'd all just be independent, right? We wouldn't need anybody. We'd just need ourselves, and that's it. But we wouldn't need anybody else. And so what if God wants it to look this way? What if he wants the gospel, which then leads to diversity, which then leads to differences, then leads to satisfaction, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, and then that leads to generosity on the part of those that actually have, and then that leads to actual unity. So what if in God's wisdom he allows differences so that we can look past those differences and still be unified around the gospel. Because if you think about it, these differences actually allow us to be unified around something much greater, and it's Jesus Christ, and it's the cross, and it's the gospel. And so this is the topic we're dealing with this morning. Go ahead and look at James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And this part of James is written to a different demographic than the previous parts of James. Uh, James has been written to Christians that are in this area um, that James is writing to. And this part of James, however, is written to, um, to the rich, but not rich Christians. It's written to rich unbelievers. And the letter is going to Christians. So this is kind of like a prophetic word of judgment to the rich. The rich in that area that are unbelievers are exploiting the poor that are Christians. And so James is writing as a prophetic um, witness to these Christians saying, these rich people who are exploiting you and taking advantage of you as the poor Christians, they will reap their reward. And this is a word of warning from James to um, these, uh, these rich unbelievers. So um, let's read in James chapter 4, verse 13. Start in verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, whenever I teach up here, I like to just sort of imagine in my mind what you might be thinking when you hear a certain phrase or hear a certain verse. And when I first read this, the statement where he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And I think in your brains, you tune out because you're like, that sounds like Wall Street. That's not my life right now. And so I'm out. I'm on my phone. This is, this is not this message for me. But I want you to stay plugged in for a minute because I want, to, I want you to show, I want to show you what he's talking about. 
in this passage. Because at first it seems like he's saying that planning is bad, right? It looks like he's saying that, that making plans is a bad idea, but we know from other parts of Scripture this is not the case. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11, we read, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. If you look at the Bible, all throughout the Bible, there's the idea that planning is generally a good idea. So the message of James is not, hey, don't make plans. Making plans is, is, is a bad thing. Um, so nowhere in the Bible do we see that plans are a bad thing. But if you look more closely at the James passage, we see it's not just plans he's referring to, but it's, it's our heart attitude as we make our plans. This is the key to this whole passage. It's the heart attitude. So look back again at verse 15. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So plans aren't the problem. The heart attitude behind those plans is the issue in play here. And he's not talking about, you've, you may have met these, uh, these really spiritually sounding people who will throw out the word, Lord willing. You've heard people like this, right? That um, if they say something like, uh, you know, yeah, tomorrow we're going um, to drive up to Fort Worth, Lord willing. Or next week we're going to go down to San Antonio, Lord willing. And it, it just kind of throws you off. You're like, why, why do you keep saying that word, right? I don't understand why you keep saying that. But listen, God's not asking us to just be pious and sound spiritual and just throw out the word, you know, Lord willing. But he wants you to live in such a way that you acknowledge that all of your plans are under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. You don't have to throw out that word and that phrase just to sound like you're, okay, you know, we, we, we know that, we know that God's will you know, trumps my will. But this is more about a heart attitude as you make your plans. It's referring to an attitude of humility instead of an attitude of, of arrogance. So I want to raise a question. How do we avoid this kind of arrogance? This passage shows us a couple ways we do this. First of all, it's right view of the future. We avoid this kind of arrogance by having a correct view and a right view of the future. Verse 14. Look back at verse 14. It says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So verse 14 reminds us that we have no idea that t- what tomorrow is going to bring. And while he's talking about money, I want to show how this applies to you. Because many of you are making plans for your future right now. And you've got a, you've got a picture of what the future is going to most likely hold for you. You're picturing the next couple of years, the next um, four years or so into college and beyond, and you're, you're planning and you're making plans for those kinds of things. Now, what if God allows something into your life the next six to eight years that you just were not expecting? A tragedy. How would you respond to this kind of thing? Um, a couple of months ago, I was just at home with my family, and I got a phone call. You guys know um, Austin Hagen graduated last year, and Austin's mom called me and said, hey, um, one of Austin's roommates, his name is Cole at Baylor, and he just found out he has a rare form of cancer, 
and it's treatable, which is good news. But I would love for you to come to the hospital and just pray with him and his parents. They're up here at Scott and White. And so within 24 hours, this kid, this college freshman at Baylor, who's from Tennessee, is just living life. And suddenly within 24 hours, finds out he has cancer and is going to have to go back to Tennessee and get treatment and drop out of Baylor for the time being. And so I walk into the waiting room, and, and he's already been taken back for some, for some kind of a test. And I'm meeting with these parents for the first time, these, this mom and this dad, and also Barbara Hagen. And we're just talking. And this, I could tell this family has their priorities right. This family, you could tell they're grieving. They're, it's a tough situation. This is not what they were expecting. But I also could see in this, in this couple that they know God's in control. And they've released this to him. They know this is not our plan. But right now, this is God's plan. And I prayed with them and spent time with them. And the good news is it's highly treatable. But how would you and I respond when someone, when your life is struck with tragedy, when you're planning on, you know, going here or going there next few years, and suddenly God just changes the plan for you? Our response to that situation or one like that, will reveal a lot about our heart and whether or not we approach God with arrogance or approach God with humility. The second thing that we have to understand is a right view of ourselves. And so again, in verse 14, we're reminded that we are much less significant than you and I think we are. The Bible has a great picture for what our life is like and it's a mist. We also see this in, in Ecclesiastes. We're called a vapor. That our life is like a mist or a vapor. And you and I think that we are so significant, so important, and we live our lives in this way. And the Bible reminds us that, no, you're, you're more like a mist or a vapor. If you don't know what a mist is or a vapor, um, this might be hard for you guys to imagine, but there are some places in the world where it gets so cold, right, that when you breathe outside, it, you can see your breath. I know this might sound weird to you, but there are places that actually gets that cold in the world, right? And you can see your breath, and it's there one second, and it's just gone. And this is how the Bible describes you and I. This is your life. This is you're here, and then you're gone, and you're forgotten about. And I just want to just prove this to you for a minute because I'm not sure you, that we realize how insignificant we really are. How many of you guys um, can name all four of your grandparents? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. You can name all four of your grandparents. You only have four, right? Like you name, most of you can, so like half of you guys can't name your four grandparents. That's set. You're just like, well, they're just called grandma and grandpa. I don't know their names. You get the idea, okay? <laughs> um, okay, how many of you guys can name just one of your great-grandparents? This is for the generation. Wait, I see more hands. This is weird. This is not working out the way I anticipated. <laughs> You're like, now I understand the question. He meant their actual name, not just grandma. Um, yeah, so about half of you. Now, how many of you guys can name more than... Like you can name two to three of your great-grandparents. Great-grandparents. 
Now, who can name all eight of your great-grandparents? You lie. <laughs> okay, we'll do a test later. We'll see about this. Um, I want to get your mom and dad down here. We will do a serious test on the Chambliss family. And I bet they're all Aggies, too, aren't they? They're all Aggies, aren't they? No, not all Aggies. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so you get the idea. But listen, how depressing is it for you and I to know that in like two to three generations, your descendants may not even know your name. And they may not have any idea what you accomplished. Right? Now you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but you know, I mean, that's, that's the older generation and my grandkids are going to have Google. They can Google me up. They can look at my Wikipedia page. I'll be famous. And so you, you and I think that we're, we have such significant lives, and we are so important, and yet the people two to three generations down the road from you that have your blood running through their veins may not even know your name, much less what you accomplished. And so you and I are a vapor. We're like, we're like a mist, the Bible calls us. And so um, I want you to go ahead and, and, and dive in here for a minute into questions uh, one to three. Go ahead and look at your first three questions there at your tables. Go ahead and discuss those for a few minutes. All right, let's look at uh, James chapter five. Now look at the next chapter. We're going to start in verse one. So James 5.1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now listen, this passage is not just bashing people that have money. That's not the point of this morning's discussion. You've got to understand the context. Once again, there are these rich unbelievers that are oppressing poor believers. And this is who James is writing about here in the passage. And so this is God's pronouncement of judgment upon these people. If they don't change their ways and repent, this is what's going to happen to them. So it's not a sin to be rich. I don't want that to be the message today. It's not a sin to have money and be wealthy. You might say it this way, this quote by Sam Alberry, he says, it is not wealth that is the issue, but rather what is done and not done with that wealth. It's not just having the wealth. It is how you use what God has given to you. So there's, there's three tr- traits I want you to see here. These are th- three sinful traits that someone who has a lot can fall into. So three things we can fall into if we have a lot of, of wealth. The first is hoarding. Now, how many of you guys ever watch those like hoarding reality shows? Anybody? Why? Why do you watch them? Because <laughs> I admit, listen, 
I admit there's something in me that wants to watch those, but my wife won't let me. She's like, no, I can't watch it. I'll get the heebie-jeebies. I can't do it. And so she gets the heebie-jeebies. She can't watch those shows. Um, but listen, most of those shows are not about wealthy people. It's often poor, impoverished people that are hoarding everything. This is referring to a wealthy kind of hoarding, meaning like gathering wealth just because, just for the sake of it. Just doing it because you can, right? And don't put my next picture up. I want to just kind of tease this out for a bit. I'll put the picture up here in a minute. But, but um, there are, uh, I read a story about a week ago of in the city of Dubai where everyone has a lot of money. If you're an Emirati, you have a ton of money because um, they have tons and tons of oil and they're an oil-rich country. Now, there is a guy who is filthy rich and there, and um, apparently it's a big deal to um, spend money on your license plates for your car, right? Not just have a nice car, but have like an expensive license plate. And so this one guy spent $9 million on a license plate for his car. Now listen, when I tell you that, what do you picture? You picture like some serious gold and diamonds on that license plate, don't you? That's what I picture when I first read the headline of the article. But I want you to see, here is the license plates. Watch, look at this picture. Those are the license plates that he paid $9 million for. And you're like, okay, I don't see any gold. I don't see any diamonds. Why did that cost $9 million? Great, quest, great question. Here's why it costs so much. Because in the United Arab Emirates, um, for some reason in their culture, it's a big deal to have a single-digit license plate. And so the government knows this. The government decides, let's raise money off this. So they have an auction. And you can bid on a single-digit license plate. And the highest bidder gets it. And so this guy spent $9 million for one license plate. All it is is metal and paint just for the exclusivity of I've got a number five and I have a number nine. Now, you see those cars, those license plates? Those are Rolls Royces. I have no clue how much a Rolls Royce costs. But it's not $9 million. He spent more money, much more, on his license plates than he did on his cars, and his cars are Rolls Royces. This is someone spending money just because. Just because of what it says about them. And this guy says, this is so exclusive, there are people that will stop him and want to take pictures with him in front of these cars, not for the car, but for the license plate. It's crazy. So someone who's wealthy, spending money, just getting things just because, because of what it says about them and who they are, this is an example of someone who is hoarding, right? So for the Christian, you and I don't amass wealth or just get things just for what it says about us or just because. We don't buy things just because. We're not wealthy just because. The Christian works hard to pay their own bills, but they also work hard so they can be generous. In fact, one of my um, greatest heroes is an old Redskin player named Daryl Green. Some of the old guys will know who this guy is, right? So he is was a Washington Redskins cornerback for 
over about 20 years. Believe it or not, this is back in a day when like the team that drafted actually played with the team for like you could play for a long, long time for that one team. And he was drafted in like the early 80s. He retired in the early 2000s. Guess what? He, as a cornerback, a cornerback has to cover the wide receivers. He has to be one of the fastest guys on the field to do that. This guy played until he was 42 years old as a cornerback in the NFL. He actually spoke at my church a couple of times when I was in high school. It was a really cool thing to meet him. But he's in the Hall of Fame. He's an all-pro. And this is not back when guys got a ton of money to play like they do now. And he was an excellent football player. But here's the deal. People began asking him questions like, okay, you're 40, you're 40 years old. Like, why do you want to keep playing? You've won a couple of championships. You're going to the Hall of Fame. You've made a bunch of money. You've had a long, productive career. Why are you still putting your body through all of this at the age of 40? And he played two more years until he was 42, then he retired. And this is his response. He said, I'm playing two more years because he goes, I need $10 million more million so I can start a home for troubled boys. And so this is what the Christian does. The Christian may work hard to get money, but they do it for a cause like this. It causes you to say things like, you know, I'm going to keep working because I need, I, need, I need to start something. I need to do something with, with, with what God's given me. I need to start something that, that God has in my heart for young men. And so he did it. He took the money last couple of years, and it was all for the cause of starting a home for troubled teens. This is what the Christian does. The second thing this passage addresses is injustice. In verse 4, we look back at verse 4 again, we see the rich are exploiting the poor, and we see that God cares deeply about injustice. When you and I have money, it's very easy to see people. Just think of that whenever you guys go on vacation, think of the people you come in contact with. The people at the gas station, the people at the front desk of the hotel, the people that clean your hotel rooms, the people that you just see as you pass by as you're on vacation. These would be the people that might be invisible to you, the people that you might see as the little people. But in God's economy, there are no little people. In God's economy, everyone is important. There are no little people. There are no insignificant people. And so think about this. When you and I come in contact with people that you might see as that category of people, the people that don't, aren't that significant, how do you treat them? How do you respond to them? Do you see them as real people with real lives and real stories? I'm very grateful for the time that I was in high school and college working in the service industry, working as a waiter, waiting on tables and stuff, working at a fast food place. In fact, I recommend to you, if, if you're someone that doesn't have to have that kind of a job, like your parents pay for stuff, that's great. I would highly recommend that at some point in your life, you work a job that's like that because it will teach you a lot and it will teach you an appreciation for people that you may not appreciate right now. Because whenever I go to a restaurant, I think to myself, 
I know what that is like. I've done that. I'm leaving a big fat tip. And so how do you, how do you and I see people that work behind the register, that work behind the desk, that work, think about your school. How do you, how do you see the people like the security guard in your school or the, the people that work the lunchroom at your school? Do you talk to them? Do you relate to them? How do you view them? Do you see certain people as those are the little people? You don't say it out loud, but we think these kinds of things. So this is referring to a kind of injustice that we see in our culture. And the last thing that's talked about here is extravagance. Listen, whether your family has a little or whether your family has a lot, we are tempted towards entitlement. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying God's good gifts. Nothing wrong with that. But the goal, your goal and my goal, should not be to live the easiest kind of life that we can live. That should not be the goal. And so this might be the temptation for you. Over the next 10 years, this will be your temptation. Because think about it. Right now, most of your parents are like probably somewhere in their 40s, maybe 50s. And they're like at this middle age. And you're seeing how your parents' life is right now. And I'll tell you, for many of your parents, for most of your parents, life isn't as difficult financially for them right now as it was when they were 23. Now, for some people, it's different. Some are struggling, and they're always struggling. But for many of you, your parents are not in a place of life like they were back at age 23 when everything was just really, really difficult. And so you're seeing your parents right now in that place of life where things aren't as hard as they used to be. And so the temptation for you is going to be that you go to college and you get out and you're 22, 23 years old and you just expect to walk straight into a situation like your parents have right now because you've not ever seen your parents live at that stage of life. And so you're 22, 23 and you expect us to walk into some kind of a job, walk into a you know, 60 grand a year salary, and all, everything's just paid for it. Here's the reality, guys. When you guys finish, finish college, you will make the least amount of money at that point of your life, and you'll have some of the highest bills all at the same time. School loans, car payments, rent, maybe a house payment. Like, your bills are going to be actually pretty high, and your pay is going to be kind of low. And so you can't just walk straight into the situation your parents are in right now. And so you and I can often have this sense of entitlement, like, well, you know, I mean, mom and dad, they always do this for me, and so I should have the same thing. And listen, the whole point of today, listen, this is a spiritual issue. This is not just a pragmatic talk about money. This is a spiritual and a heart issue. The way you and I approach this kind of thing, money, inequality, how we see people, this is a deeply rooted spiritual issue. We've talked about how this series is the gospel on the ground. This whole thing comes back to the gospel. Because the moment you start thinking that you're entitled to certain things, that's a gospel issue. Because at the root of that, there's this feeling of God owes me. And how much more, if, you're, if you would say that God owes me this and God owes me that, how much more would you say it about salvation? 
God owes me salvation. I'm entitled. I'm owed. And so this all ties into the gospel and how you see yourself, how you see God. And so I just want to encourage you for a minute this morning. The big problem here isn't having money, but it's loving money. It's making money into an idol. And we give you guys lots of warnings in here. As do your parents. Your parents give you warnings, you know. Watch out for those relationships. Watch out for drugs. Watch out for this. Watch out for that. But we rarely say watch out for wealth. Watch out for money. Watch out for what this can do to your heart and the pride it can display. And so wealth can be dangerous. I don't want you to be scared of it. I want you to be a good steward of it, knowing that it says something about your heart. And so it's possible to be in all kinds of financial situations and be ungodly or godly. It's possible, it's possible to be ungodly and poor, ungodly and rich, godly and poor, godly and rich. I want you to be godly with your wealth. Be godly if you're someone who has little. You be godly in your poverty. You be godly in your wealth. And James encouraged us towards this end. And so wherever you find yourself on this spectrum we're talking about today, um, I want this to be our prayer. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Go and discuss your last few questions at your tables.